This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is useful. Equity. Welcome to another episode of Equity May. It's a podcast where we help you learn to invest in 45 minutes or less. We break down the world of investing from beginning to dividend so that you can hopefully make some returns. My name is Bryce and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How's it going, bro? I'm very good, Bryce. Well, I'm always excited for episodes, but yeah. I'm particularly excited for this one. Why is that? There's a few reasons. The first time we've gone roving, we're, we're not in a studio. <laughs> yes. We're not, but we're not on a street recording <laughs> online. We've actually taken our microphones to our guest. And it is a very special guest. It's one of our favorite guests. Back for another Mastermind episode, it's Julia Lee. It's great to have you here. <laughs> yeah, it's exciting. We can see where Julia is now uh, running her empire. Investing yes. Empire. <laughs> no, it's good. Thanks for joining us, Julia, for our favorite episode of the month, Mastermind. I'm excited. For anyone that has just joined the show, thank you for joining. Pleasure to have you on our journey of investing. The way that this episode works is that we'll each bring a stock to the table and pitch it. It's not a buy, hold or a sell recommendation by any stretch of the imagination. This is purely just to give you an idea of how we go about looking at stocks, thinking about it in its broader context and particularly to understand and get Julia's sort of feedback on what we're thinking and to pick her brains about it. So we very much like it. I think Ren's come to the table again with a bit of a rogue suggestion. (laughs) (laughs) I always like to bring a surprising one. (laughs) Julia, this time I I said to Ren that it's important he brings an Australian stock because she showed me a list he had before (laughs) of all these stocks he's chosen and you're talking Israel. (laughs) He's forcing home country bias on me. (laughs) (laughs) But before we get started, Julia, we are in the middle of reporting season. We know very it's a very important time for yourself mm. um, and obviously a lot of other people in the markets. And we thought we'd t- sort of touch base on how you think about reporting season and a bit of, around the coronavirus as well. Um, did you have any specific questions to kick off, Reg? No, let's start general and then we'll get specific as we go. Uh, so the reason why reporting season is important is because it tells me what trends are continuing in the market which have reversed and where there there are changes going on or catalysts coming up. So generally stocks that outperform during reporting season tend to outperform uh, in the months after reporting season as well. 
Unfortunately, this reporting season has been overshadowed by the coronavirus and fears that we're going to see a global slowdown on the back of that. So just with uh, the half-year reporting season, we went into reporting season expecting Australian earnings to grow by 4.9%, so almost 5% this financial year. That's been downgraded just a little bit to 4.7% growth. So it's not a huge move. It's not going to really do too much. And given that we've got low interest rates still supporting, that probably wasn't enough to uh, justify the volatility that we're seeing in terms of the market at the moment. So coronavirus. (laughs) What does that mean? I mean, to be perfectly truthful, days like this are, are pretty difficult for most people, I think. Not only do you see red across the market, but also the headlines from all over the world. And nowadays, you know, you see videos on Twitter about, you know, the impact of coronavirus, how difficult people are having to breathe. So on days like this, I like to take a deep breath and go back in time and just have Julia, a look. I might just quickly interrupt you there. Uh, days like this, we're recording on the 24th of February and the market's fallen a bit over 2%, just so people know in case the market shoots up over the coming days. Oh, yes. <laughs> just in case you're watching this maybe years after yeah, exactly. it was actually yeah. recorded. Um, the coronavirus, which started at the end of 2019 in China, it's taken hold in South Korea now and in Italy over in Europe. So over the weekend, we saw bad news. Today, the Korean KOSPI came back online down by 3.9%, which is a pretty hefty fall. And the Australian share market was down by 2.3%. So the fear is that we are going to see a global recession on the back of this, given that China is the manufacturing capital of the world and Korea is a large exporter and Europe with its open border policy is a pretty big economy as well. So on days like this, I like to go back in time to have a look and remind myself that volatility is perfectly normal on the market. In fact, most years there's spikes in volatility. So when I talk about volatility, I'm talking about the fall that we've seen in the market. So I thought I'd go back in time, look at the last 10 years and have a look at the times where the Australian share market has fallen more than 2%. And on average in one year, this happens around about seven times. Oh, wow. Yeah, so if you put it in that context, you know, a 2% fall is perfectly normal. In fact, there was only one year in the past 10 years where there was zero falls greater than uh, 2%, and that was in 2017. And 2017 wasn't a great year. The market returned about 7%. 2009, we saw falls of more than 2%, 12 times, so quite a lot compared to the average, and yet the share market was up by 30%. So just a reminder that volatility sometimes is a sign that the market's just going hard and it needs to have a a bit of a rest. I thought I'd go back further because the fees are around a recession at the moment. And so I had a look at the last recession that we had in Australia, which was in September 1990. And because, you know, I wasn't working back then, I thought I'd go and have a look at the numbers. And the market fell 7% in the month of September, but by December had bottomed out. And in fact, in the following year, 1991, every single quarter was a positive one for the market. So it just gives me a bit of perspective in terms of the volatility and reminds me that nothing lasts forever, not even falls on the market. 1991, a good year for the market, an even better year for Bryce. 
Yeah. Birth year. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Giving away my age there, Ren. Thank you. Never lived through a recession. <laughs> Never lived through a recession. <laughs> so, what are your sort of thoughts towards the end of this year then, with knowing that the impact coronavirus is likely to have on particularly Australian economy? What would you be looking for from sort of sentiment from companies now, or is it too early to sort of tell? Sure. So generally when we see shocks to the market, they tend to be financial shocks. So the global financial crisis was because financial companies were taking too much risk and there was instability in terms of the financial system. This time around, what we are seeing is a supply side shock because China manufactures so much of the world's goods, seeing a supply side shock, which could turn into a demand side demand side shock. So then I think to myself, well, I have a great imagination. <laughs> what's, what's this like? likely to look like in three or six months' time. And because the the thing that I can most sort of link it to, because, you know, I, I've never seen anyone with SARS or MERS or any of those viruses, is the flu. When I think of the flu, it's particularly bad in winter, and it's winter in the Northern Hemisphere at the moment. But come March, the weather will be warmer, we'll be going into spring, and then we'll be going into summer as well. So I think in the Northern Hemisphere, the the bad news should start becoming less bad by March, April at the latest. So for me, I'm sort of looking at as a potential bout in volatility of about two to three months, unless global growth is hugely impacted somewhere along the line. But in my mind at the moment, it's a two to three month bout of volatility, and I'll use that as an opportunity. Silver lining there. But I guess the flip side of that is if you don't see things clearing up in March or April, is that when you start getting worried? Yeah, I think you, in all scenarios, what I try to think about is the worst case scenario because the best case scenarios tend to look after themselves. But generally, when you look at scenarios, you look at the probability of scenarios playing out. So I've explained to you what I think is the most probable scenario But of course, you think about what could be the worst case scenarios. So I've done a lot of reading into the coronavirus. (laughs) And what I've seen is that it tends to impact on children less, if at all. So they don't have symptoms or they don't catch it. I've only seen one death of a child under 18. And it tends to affect males more than females, especially, but that might be explained because males tend to smoke more than females. It it tends to affect Asians more. The Asian countries that we've seen impacted, there's heavy smokers there. Here in Australia, you know, where it's $50 for a packet of cigarettes, (laughs) I'm not sure if it's going to take hold as much. And of course, um, the older tend to be vulnerable as well. So I guess the fear is that, you know, we see this move into Australia this winter season and then you know, we see people being impacted. Australia being a country that could probably be impacted quite significantly if it came here and we had to enforce measures like they are in other countries, yeah. considering the impact we're already having from So I've already from started to stockpile on uh, rice and staples. Toilet paper. <laughs> There's a run on toilet paper in Hong Kong. <laughs> Get your month's supply of toilet paper in now. But also I think about a lot of people have been asked to work from home. Mm, I'm not mm. necessarily overseas, but here in Australia already as well. Um, so how does that impact on our spending decisions? You know, do we use more data, internet? Do we do more internet shopping? Do we watch more TV, so those type of things as well. And then because so many high-profile sporting events, big events are being cancelled, what does that mean for marketing, advertising, uh, spending in those type of areas as well? 
It's fascinating. Good social experiment to understand the effects of uh, large-scale working from home, though. Yes. <laughs> you mean productivity? <laughs> yes. <laughs> hey, I'm an advocate, but uh, anyway. <laughs> so, Julia, before we uh, get into our individual stocks that we're bringing to this mastermind discussion, I'm interested to get your take on reporting season, not so much from the share price movement, because we know that the coronavirus has been this sort of black cloud weighing on the market. But in terms of company results, have any surprised you? Have any disappointed you? Anything that's really stood out for you in terms of the companies that have reported so far? Yeah, um, I mean, I think we, we're seeing a strong Aussie dollar effect in the exporters and that's continuing with the new lows that we're seeing in terms of the Aussie dollar for the year. So that's helping the exporters. I think because of the coronavirus, there's what's happened and then what will happen. So, for example, we look at IDP Education or IEL, which came out with a great result and the share price went up, but its business is dependent on international students. So although we're seeing a good result, a strong result and good price momentum, it's still one that I'm wary on because I'm not so sure that the outlook's going to continue continue to improve. Same with a company like Webjet good result. So this reporting season is a little bit different in that I not only judge um, what's happened in the past, but also the future. The other thing I watch out for are companies that need to really hit it out of the ballpark in the second half to meet their full year forecast. This is what we call the second half club, where they need to have fantastic results to meet their full year guidance. And obviously these companies are at a high risk of a potential downgrade. So I'm keeping a list of those type of companies as well. One of them that comes to mind that has been running really strongly is Costa Group. And the reason I watch Costa Group (laughs) is because I go down to my local um, fruit and veg shop and I'm constantly checking out the price of blueberries and mushrooms. And mushrooms are still so cheap and they're a big product for Costa Group. So the share price has been running, but we haven't seen mushroom price recovery. In fact, I've been eating lots of mushrooms because they're really cheap. Um, So until we see that pricing, so Costa Group is probably forecasting that pricing will come back in many of their products in the second half of the year. But for me, that's a a big risk. So yeah, the the second half club, Boral's in there as well, just trying to remember all the names because you just put me on the spot. Uh, <laughs> but, Classic um, Ren. Yeah, Boral <laughs> and Costa Group are the two that come to mind where, you know, you really need to see strong second half growth for the company to meet expectation. Mm-hmm. And we all know the importance of uh, meeting expectation when it comes to reporting season. So speaking of, should we get stuck into our stock picks? Let's do it. Nice. Well, I'll kick off, keeping with tradition. Speaking of keeping with tradition, I seem to be developing a bit of a retail theme here. <laughs> well, it's in your circle of competence. Very much your in day my job is in retail, yes. and so you only invest in retail. Yes. So I did City <laughs> Chic, which I was politely reminded by one of our community members the other week that I had been pronouncing it City Chic and uh, apparently City Chic. So anyway, <laughs> moving on. I've done City Chic, I've done Breville, I've done Baby Bunting. So I thought I would choose another retail company that has been performing. Before we get onto that, we should say that Stockpick was up 8% <laughs> or something after its half-year report. So, uh, Thank once you for pointing that out, well. I didn't want to been do doing extremely well. And Breville has also uh, done very well. Yes, Breville, yeah, Breville did very well. Equity Mates Fund coming 2021. Retail fund. <laughs> <laughs> so we talk a lot about companies, you know, what we look for in companies, and that's uh, good management 
and a company that consistently demonstrates good earnings growth time and time again, as well as also the importance of being good capital allocators or, you know, in other words, giving a, a good return on capital, which is why I have chosen JB Hi-Fi for my mastermind pick for February. Now, I know it's a stock that is often talked about and has been performing really well, but I've been having conversations with my mates around, you know, how is it possible that JB can continue to perform so well in a pretty challenging and disruptive retail market. So how can it? <laughs> Julia, you tell me. <laughs> That's why we're here. I mean, JB Hi-Fi is one of those great performers. I really like the company. But the question is, does it have more to give? Yeah, well, that was the challenge and to your point around the coronavirus piece. When I'm thinking about where JB Hi-Fi is going, that is a challenging piece to think about in terms of outlook because... They might not have any products to sell. Exactly. Yes. They could be impacted in many ways, not even just from people not buying stuff in Australia, but their total supply chain could be impacted by People will just stop going to Westfield shopping centers because of the coronavirus. Yeah. Well, <laughs> then they're in trouble. <laughs> so my pick is JB. It's made up of JB Hi-Fi, which we all know is this, you know, one of the leading sellers of consumer electronics, but it is also made up of the good guys, which concentrates on the sale of home appliances. I recently brought bought a Breville product from the good guys. Synergy. <laughs> Synergy. How about that? So they acquired the good guys back about three years ago for $870 million and it has been performing well for them. So just to touch on earnings, they have reported this earnings season. They have had seven consecutive years of sales and earnings growth, as I said, despite significant disruption. So a very good performer. And it is now the seventh largest consumer electronics and appliance retailer in the world. Couldn't tell you the seven above them, but it sounds like it's pretty decent. Top seven. Not bad. Yeah. They always say go for the top seven. <laughs> <laughs> so JB posted a 6.5% lift in half-year profit to $170 million, which was ahead of expectations, which we know is a good thing in reporting season, and a just under 4% increase in total sales over the first half of the year. So going pretty well. Comp sales also grow four, grew 4.4% and in retail comp sales is a, an important figure just showing growth with the same amount of stores on last year. And interestingly, their return on capital is 18%. So very good capital allocators. But um, firstly, any comments? So why is JB Hi-Fi doing so well? Well, Julian, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> <laughs> Firstly, you can't go past their management. I think their CEO, uh, Richard Murray, is perhaps one of the best CEOs in retail in the country. You ain't going for a job or something. <laughs> <laughs> and I know I also work for an incredibly good CEO, but over the past five years, um, <laughs> he's absolutely cemented his reputation. But I went and had a look into their annual report and they state that there's they have five competitive advantages. First one being their scale. Second one being their low-cost operating model. Third one being their quality of store locations. The fourth one, supplier partnerships. And then the fifth one, the multi-channel capability. But I think it was important to touch on their low-cost operating model. They're incredibly focused on productivity, both within their stores and throughout the supply chain. They have the lowest cost of doing business across all retailers in the country. And it's, or it's, a, it's a very leading global benchmark as well. Cost of doing business is about 15%. So that's in incredibly lean, I guess. And so they, they really focus in on making their operating model as effective and efficient as possible. And they've done this through things like having flexible staff hours, introducing headsets to help improve communication within stores, and then merging 
you know, their JB Hi-Fi and Good Guys support centers into a single sort of warehouse and, and consolidating their supply chain and logistics as well. So we know in retail that reducing your cost of doing business is incredibly important. So that's one reason. Comments, Reg? I just had a question. So the first two that they've listed are scale and low-cost operating model. And as with everything in retail these days, the fear is Amazon. And it's, you know, whispered quietly in the hallways as um, people plan to somehow protect their turf against them. Yes. Amazon has both scale and a lower-cost operating model. So... How do you think they're continuing to compete so well against this online giant? Well, they say it's through their, their customer offer and primarily through still through their bricks and mortar stores. And it comes from what they believe to be an incredibly good customer offer. They think they've developed a brand that when customers go in, they know they're getting almost the cheapest possible. And the customer service element they find their customers is what draws them in as opposed to going and buying from, say, the likes of Amazon. But I also think Amazon hasn't really had the impact that we thought it would have here in Australia. Mm. I've got to say, whenever I go to JB, I'm really surprised that they've, they've sort of changed from what I imagined JB is, which was, you know, the cheap DVDs and CDs to stuff that is really high touch. It's and phones, expensive. it's TVs, yeah, yeah, it's sound systems. It's stuff that you want to look and feel and play with before you buy it. I agree. So I feel like they've done well to sort of pivot a little bit and then Amazon proof their business in some ways. And that is credit to their CEO, who one of the first things he did was pivot to their offering and expand the floor space with things like phones and, to your point, Ren, things that you want to go in and touch and play with. But they also have very strategic partnerships like Apple and Telstra, who people want to buy, and they obviously go into the stores to buy these sorts of products. I've spent over a thousand bucks in uh, JB Hi-Fi over the last couple of months, and I'm also a very strong customer of Amazon as well. I've got the Amazon app on my phone, and I've not only ordered through Amazon US, but the UK, as well as Amazon Australia. Um, But when it comes to something I need urgently, like this keyboard, my mouse is from JB Hi-Fi, the earbuds, which were over 200 bucks, he spent 200 bucks on the earbuds. That was from JB Hi-Fi because I needed them very quickly. And the cables as well and power boards Mm -hmm. when I was setting everything up. Well, you know, I needed them urgently. Where am I going to go to get them? Mm, JB. JB and they're really helpful. Yeah, well, exactly to their point. I think they really strive uh, or pride themselves on, on cost and customer service, which we know is very important in retail. But I guess my concern would be valuations here. It yes. feels to me like it's priced for perfection. So my question is, where can it give more? Yeah, well, that is a good question. You can spend $2,000 next time <laughs> yeah. you go in. <laughs> you need to shop more, Julia. My feeling would be probably in the online space, but I'm probably looking to you, Julia, for, for what do you think on this? Yeah, I think generally with retailers, new products often spur sales. For example, when the iPhone first came out, that was a, a big channel of sales for some of these electronic retailers. And I guess the next frontier for um, technology is 5G. So I'd be really interested to to see what 5G products come through, maybe the internet of things for the home, whether that it becomes a, a, a big growth market. But I guess in terms of the rollout of new stores, it's probably a bit saturated. So I'd be probably looking at new products to help spur on sales. And look, The Good Guys, I think The Good Guys is a story that's still developing. We've started to see house prices Mm -hmm. here in Australia make a recovery and Good Guys have underperformed for a couple of years, but that might be 
one thing that steps up to the plate. But I really think at these type of multiples, there's not much room for mistakes. Yeah. Well, to that point, they, I think Monday week ago, their share price had a bit of a jump and that was because they upgraded their profit for the full year which is great news for shareholders now, but we know the dangers of, I guess, missing that upgrade at the end of the year, particularly with the environment that we're in at the moment. So fingers crossed that they do hit that. But interesting to see what happens. One interesting thing that could fuel their next stage of growth, on your point of Internet of Things, Julia, is there will probably develop some very interesting synergies between their good guys business and their JB Hi-Fi business as kitchen appliances and stuff like that all start to be connected to the internet, start to become Mm. more electronic. And so I'm not sure how that will play out, but I imagine that there will be, you know, smart kettles that you buy at the good guys and that you might also be able to buy at JB Hi-Fi and, you know, or you buy them at the good guys and the support comes from JB Hi-Fi and all the aftermarket extra products are from JB. Mm. So it'll be interesting to see how they developed together. One area I noticed, because during the bushfires, I was having trouble um, breathing. So I went to buy an air purifier. Kogan was sold out till March in the ones I wanted. And Harvey Norman didn't have the models that I really wanted. JB Hi-Fi didn't have much. And that's when I went to Amazon and ordered through Amazon. I wonder how quickly they can, you know, vary their product mix. I couldn't tell you. (laughs) (laughs) Slower than Amazon. (laughs) I think, you know, I would imagine reasonably quickly given Mm. where they're getting their products from. But yeah, good question. Nice. Nice. Well, Julia, do anyone want to throw to you? Oh, my turn. Yes. (laughs) Uh, So today I thought I'd look at Lynn Lease. I like to look at companies where we're seeing a number of different catalysts on the horizon. So when I think of Lendlease, I think of a company that's going through a period of transformation. And because it's going through this period of transformation, it trades at a discount. So the more it transforms successfully, the smaller that discount becomes to some of its peers and the greater the share price. So when you look at Lendlease, this is essentially a development, construction and investment management company. In fact, the building that we're in at the moment, Lendlease looks after. So this is in one of the Lendlease funds. So we're in Barangaroo at the moment. I guess looking at the housing market first domestically, after the biggest housing downturn that we've seen in about 40 years, we're starting to see a recovery underway. So house prices are rising and there's, I think, a potential upside to residential activity and volume. They outperformed during their half-year numbers, so February reporting season. And They've said in the past that the second half will be stronger because of work they've already booked to the second half, which tells me they've had a first half, which is really strong, but a second half, which will probably be stronger than the first half. So for me, that puts it into a candidate for an upgrade. So some of the pros for people who aren't familiar with Lendlease. First of all, I think we're expecting to see the engineering division being divested. They're still trying to negotiate a few things, but that's a major catalyst for the company. And that's a short-term catalyst where we should see the share price well supported. But secondly, the urban regeneration pipeline is massive. There's about $80 billion in there. And that's five years worth of developmental activity, which will probably increase every single year. So they basically don't have to go out and book anything for the next four or five years. Um, So that's huge. To give you an idea of the scale of some of their projects, they've got the Google project in San Francisco. 
Chicago, where they're building 15,000 apartments over the next 10 to 15 years. So that's absolutely huge. And they're expecting their development margins to be around about 15%. They've also got the London Elephant Park project where they're doing a build-to-rent project. It's a £2.3 billion regeneration project, 3,000 new homes there. So I guess one of the things I like about this company, generally when you're investing into a developer, you have a lot of risk, which is involved with the housing market, whether prices are going to go up or not. But because the land price is set just before construction, you get rid of a lot of that risk, which means that Lendlease can maintain their margins when it comes to development. And then there's a funds management side of the business. They look after Tower 1, 2 and 3 in Barangaroo, as well as a number of different projects around the the globe. So we are seeing very low interest rates around the world and increasing funds under management. So they manage about $35 billion globally, either directly uh, through their funds or through mandates, through things like pension funds and things that are looking for their property um, expertise. So look, the risk is that they don't end up, you know, divesting engineering or apartment sales globally for through the the ground. But, um, you know, their, their pipeline is pretty strong, which means they don't have to do too much to shoot the lights out. So I'm interested in, you started that with prefacing it with the trading at a discount to their peers, and then you explained to us how their prospects are really strong. They're globally diversified. They have a five-year pipeline of projects. So why are they trading at a discount if they do seem to have such a strong pipeline? Yeah, they've had lots of problems in the past. When you do project work, often you have cost overruns, uh, big cost overruns. You only have to look at the metro project here in uh, Sydney (laughs) to see how bad it can get, both in terms of timing as well as in terms of costs. And one of, I guess, one of the thorns in their side has been the metro project over in Melbourne. But they've had a number of projects which have been like that, which is why it's really important uh, that they divest their engineering division, which has had those projects. And look, this area has been quite difficult for a number of companies. But when I think when it comes to project work, when you do get those project delays and those costs over cost overruns, you can see hundreds of millions of dollars of extra costs, if not even more than that. So that's been a thorn in its side and that's why it trades at a discount. So you're saying their pipeline has not really been fully priced in? They know about the pipeline. There'll be an increase in activity, but engineering's been dragging down the rest of the business. So they cut off engineering and they <laughs> negotiate <laughs> the troubles they've been having with, uh, you know, Melbourne Metro and a number of other projects away. And that will be a catalyst for the price to re-rate. I'm interested also, you, you talked about how they're very exposed to the Australian housing market, but some of their big projects are overseas, San Fran and the UK, you said? Yeah, this is not an Australian housing market story. I, I started off talking about Australian housing because um, often when people think about construction, they're thinking about the Australian market. But one of the strengths that this company has is the diversification of projects. And the reason why that's important is because it's highly unlikely that all property markets at the same time will be going down at the same time time. So that diversification is really important to investors who want less risk, but maybe greater returns in the future. But the big risk for me is number one, either the engineering divestment doesn't go ahead or not in the form, or there's extra costs involved because of the uh, current engineering projects. Or secondly, we just see apartment sales globally for some reason falling through the floor. Coronavirus. (laughs) 
(laughs) (laughs) The probability of which you would think would be pretty low. Yeah. I mean, during the global financial crisis, we did see that, but (laughs) it's always a risk that perhaps we see a global recession and we see people losing jobs or Google's impacted and, you know, they don't have the people to put in their Google apartments over the next (laughs) 10 to 15 years. Look, I think technology is a structural trend. When you're thinking about developers more generally, because it's probably not something we've spoken about on the podcast that much, but they're massive businesses in Australia and around the world, and it's probably something that people have a lot of interest in. So what are some of the key things that you looked at for Lendlease when comparing them to their peers in this development space? Sure. I like because it is an international and it's a global story, um, and their global regeneration projects are huge. I mean, you look at Barangaroo here, it's a six-star development winning awards. They're doing something that's in demand, that is that trades at a premium, and they're doing really well. If anything, what they should probably do is concentrate more on their urban renewal and regeneration pipeline and maybe get rid of some of the non-core assets because that's, I think, a key driver together with the funds management business. So those two things, I think, um, are, are the key drivers. So when you, when you talk about that urban renewal and regeneration, when conversations in America at the moment around things like the Green New Deal and redoing buildings, is that is that the kind of urban renewal that you're talking about? No, more like uh, the London Elephant Park project where they're looking at spending 2.3 billion pounds to redevelop that area, build 3,000 apartments. They're basically villages that they're building. Um, They're they're massive villages. Even here in Barangaroo, the residential towers. So really quite a premium new space that they're working on. And some spaces like the London Elephant Park project. Some of that they've done, I think, in partnership with the Canadian Pension Fund to do a build to rent project, which is a new model where you're basically building apartments to rent them out and then Lendlease and um, the Canadian Pension Fund hold those assets in a fund and take the yield, the rental yield that comes through. Wow. Yeah. Cool. Any any other questions from you? No, I'm, a, I'm fine. Yeah. Cool. Nice one. Your turn round. I guess I'm up. <laughs> <laughs> I, I always like friends because they're always a little bit left field and it's it's usually in quite an interesting area. Yeah, yeah. Well, next time I might just do Commonwealth Bank just to no, restore my reputation. You've had defence, you've had gaming. Yeah, yeah. Well, in keeping with the trend of doing something a little bit niche that some people may not have heard of, my stock today is Clovercore. And its ticker is ASX code CLV. So to begin with, a bit of context, the infant formula trade has been one of the best trades of the 2010s. A2 Milk, Bellamy's, there's a bunch of companies that have done very well for themselves and very well for their shareholders selling infant formula, especially into China. And a lot of those tailwinds haven't gone away as we enter the 2020s. Another important piece of context is that Infant formula is a replacement for breast milk. Breast milk has a lot of important nutrients and infant formula then has to try and replicate this synthetically essentially or with additives. And Clovercorp produces and sells to infant formula manufacturers one of these really important additives. Its acronym is DHA. I'm not going to tell you the the full name because I'll butcher the pronunciation. But essentially it's an omega-3 fatty acid. And these omega-3 fatty acids are something that the human body is unable to naturally produce. So we rely on getting it from things 
like our diet. So it's an important additive to this infant formula. Usually fish. Yes, yes. And clover produces a lot of their DHA from tuna. So that's, that's what the company does. In the last five years, the share price has gone from 30 cents to $2.77 a share. So wow. 800% increase. That's obviously on the back of that same infant formula tailwind, you know, as A2 and the other infant formula manufacturers do well, their suppliers do well as well. So that's the company. I'll stop here and if you guys have any questions and then I'll continue with the spiel. Sure. I've got a question. I always have questions. (laughs) Um, So Clovercorp is one I followed for a number of years and it didn't really do too much because the ingredients that you add into infant formula it was seen very much as just another commodity and the real value from infant formula came not from the ingredients that come that are in the infant formula but from the marketing and the perception so A2 does that really well Bellamy's did that well for a while um, and so why clover Corp? What differentiates their DHA product from anyone else's? So commodity businesses uh, obviously face cost pressures, but there are commodity businesses that win if they have a better product for whatever reason or they can operate at scale or uh, they're the lowest cost producer. Clovercorp has worked with the CSIRO in Australia to develop a capsule that essentially removes a lot of the smell from tuna omega-3, which is obviously very off-putting if your infant formula smells like fish. Um, So the CSIRO and Clover developed it together and Clover have an exclusive license on that until 2027. And don't discount the impact of that because I've tried a few baby formulas on my kids and one of them just made my baby smell so bad. <laughs> I've never I thought had about to that. change yeah. the brand because I couldn't stand having her head near my nose. <laughs> no way. They probably weren't using Clovercorp's Omega-3 then. <laughs> the best smelling one that I've, uh, I've used is Bellamy's followed by A2. There you go. So do Bellamy's and A2 not have this problem as well or like? I don't know why, but the the particular brand, I won't mention it, was the one that was used in the hospital, but it's been around for generations and maybe they just haven't changed their formula for generations. I'm not sure. So I'm not sure and I'm not 100% sure if Clover directly supply A2 or Bellamy's. That may explain it or there may be another reason. But to answer your question, Julia, so one reason is this technology that they have exclusive rights to for another seven years. So that gives them a bit of a runway. The second part is that in terms of this powdered DHA that they provide, they, at least as of 2018, they supplied about 50% of the world's demand. So they're the biggest supplier in that space. And there are three other competitors. So it's not a massively crowded field, two Dutch companies and a German company. Mm. So... In terms of being a producer at scale and in terms of being a producer with some IP that their competitors don't have access to, they do have some strategic advantages. Whether that really matters in terms of infant formula producers just wanting to get whatever's cheapest and easiest, they may, you know, it may not, but it seems to have done, served them well given that, you know, their share price has been on a nice run in the last five years. So they, are they only dependent on more babies being born in the world or is there another driver? It's a good question and it leads me very nicely into why I think this growth will continue. You know, one thing that, Julia, you always talk about is this looking for catalysts and I think I've really internalised that in when I'm looking at stocks. And there's a big catalyst that has just started to play out, which is around regulatory changes. So as I mentioned at the start of this spiel, 
because infant formula is trying to replicate breast milk, they need to include a lot of the important nutrients that you get. And regulators are now starting to regulate the amount of certain things in infant formula. The European Commission, so the EU, released a ruling that said companies needed to double the amount of DHA in their infant formula by February 2020. Uh, So that was a nice tailwind in terms of global demand. But more importantly, China looked at Europe and uh, wanted to follow suit. They've just released draft regulations, so not in place, but drafts that are stipulating 15 milligrams per 100 kilocalories. I think that's the metric. And the average Chinese infant formula on the market at the moment sits at around seven milligrams. So it'll be just over double the amount of DHA needed if you want to sell your infant formula in China, if this regulation goes through. So in terms of catalyst for growth, in terms of sparking an increase in global demand, that seems to be a big one. And, and I guess the, the, the second order effect of the Chinese regulators changing their ruling on this would be any infant formula producer that's producing, say, in Australia and selling in the domestic market, but also exporting to China is going to have to change their formulation for what they sell, you know, in their home country and what they export to America and stuff as well because they're not going to run two parallel production facilities, one for China and Europe, one for the rest of the world. So it seems to be that they've got nice tailwind in terms of demand for infant formula generally and then they have specific tailwind in terms of demand for DHA in infant formula is likely to increase. Wow, yeah. I like it. <laughs> so it's very it's very niche. It trades at quite a high PE, so it's quite expensive. Looking at its cost today, it trades at $2.76 a share and its earnings per share is $0.06. Cents. So it trades at a price to earnings ratio of about 45 or 46. The reason why it may not be as expensive as it first looks is because its growth over the last five years has been quite strong. It's grown its revenue at 23% annualized over the last five years. It's grown its earnings per share at 43% a year over the last five years. So if it can continue that growth rate, then that earnings multiple might shrink and might look a little bit more in line with the broader market. So that's the spiel. It reports its half-year results on the 25th of March. So keep an eye out for that and I'll either look right or very wrong. (laughs) (laughs) I'll definitely be tracking that one. Is the price of DHA powder volatile? That's a good question. I I don't know. Thank you. I'm just thinking you know, in terms of trying to estimate earnings, if these regulations go through, you can assume that, that to your point, demand for this stuff is going to be significantly more across the globe. But if, if it is a commodities business, to, to your point as well, cost pressures are important, but as is the price of the actual commodity itself. Yeah, 100%. So yeah, look, if I was going to pull the trigger on this, that's probably something I'd try and find out. But unfortunately, I didn't. So... I don't have that answer. Well, I've learned something new. I had no idea this was even a problem. Fishy smelling baby powder. (laughs) There you go. Learn something new every day. Yeah. (laughs) And is it just the infant formula market or are there any other growth drivers? They do have other products. They're looking at, especially in the United States, they've created their own brand and they're doing like omega-3 direct-to-consumer products they're doing like omega-3 lollies and stuff like that and there are other there are other products sort of in their suite but i think in terms of where the 
where the interest is, where the, where the real growth is. At least for me, it was this part of the business. Mm. Mm. Is it back on your watch list now, Julia? Yeah. <laughs> 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 nice, Ren. Well, not as left field as I thought it, it would be. It was in Australia this time. <laughs> yes, nice. <laughs> Stay tuned next time for something uh, in an emerging market. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> Unlisted. <laughs> yeah. Equimates Media? <laughs> well, three diverse picks there. We had retail, we had construction, and we had commodity infant DHA <laughs> powder, which just goes to show, I guess, the the vast array of uh, opportunity that there is on the markets. But also, you know, it was great to understand how you're thinking about this reporting season as well, Julia. So it'd be interesting to see how all of these companies, well, JB has reported, but has Lendlease... Yes, they have. They uh, beat expectations. Nice, that's right. Nice. Given that second half is expected to be stronger. That's right, yes. And soon... 25th of March. 25th. Yeah. We'll be crowned the king. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I think... Well, actually, both of you are performing very well in terms of your uh, performance from past masterminds. <laughs> well, Julia particularly. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. You've got Breville there. And Bryce just had one shocker that really hurt him. Well, I signed this. I signed no, Andrew, <laughs> Media. I'm pretty sure it got slammed as well. But anyway, that's we right. No one bats a hundred. We don't talk about. Not that. even. You know, it's about the investing journey. <laughs> yeah. We all we all make mistakes. We can't have a 100 percent hit rate. Exactly. The key is what you do when those uh, those bombs go off in your portfolio. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Well, we'll leave it there. As always, really good to chat with you, Julia. Thank you very Pleasure. much for Thanks sharing for your time with us, and uh, looking forward to catching up next month. Sounds good. Thanks for listening to Equity Mates Investing Podcast, a production of Equity Mates Media. Please remember that everything you hear in Equity Mates Investing Podcast is general advice only. The content has been prepared without knowing your personal objectives, specific financial circumstances, or goals. The host of Equity Mates Investing Podcast may maintain positions in the companies discussed. Before considering any investment, please read the product disclosure statement and consider speaking to a licensed financial professional. 